0: Quivers full of hope. I've got the urge to
1: walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold ox peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got dim riderosis, long bows
2: on the brain. Welcome to the Track Quest Podcast. What's going on, Bob?
1: Living the dream, buddy, how you doing
2: Oh man, it's, I'm loving that we got sunshine back in our lives
1: I know, it's awesome
2: So good, it's really good
1: Yeah, we don't see the sun much around here So, we haven't been lately, it's very nice
2: Yeah, working outdoors in the sunshine, it's, it doesn't get much better So, yeah, uh, what else is new?
1: Well, we uh we got some news coming for the podcast We got... Website guy helping us out, so that should be up and running in a couple weeks. Um, we got some shirts and hats we're going to have on there. They're kind of ready to go, so if you guys want to help us out a little bit, support this thing, when we get that up and running, we'll definitely let you guys know so you can go on there and order some sweet Trad Quest shirts and hats. So that's good. Shed season, I'm going shed hunting for five days here coming up, a little trip over east with my daughter, and uh, oh, I'm trying out some bows, I almost forgot that, you are too, aren't you?
2: Yeah, man, we've been uh, shooting a couple of different bows, and that's uh super exciting.
1: Yeah, heck yeah, I, got, I called Dick, the old gangster himself. I love that guy so much, I just <laughs> have to shoot one of his bows. So I called Dick, and uh, he sent me a Koi Wolf, a little 60-incher. I think it's 50 pounds. Beautiful, man. They're just so cool. They got that bow bolt system, so they break in half. And he also sent me a Wolfer, um, which is also sweet. I don't think... I don't think that one's going home yet I haven't had a chance to shoot them a ton so I worked all weekend but I'm going out tomorrow and I'm really gonna go out in the woods do some stump shooting and and uh make the final decision but shoots good man shoots really good I'm used to a longer bow and I don't notice a ton of a difference you know going to that shorter bow so that's that's a good thing and like I said, it's pretty slick. You can just break them in half, throw them in your backpack, um, let her go. What do you, what do you shoot?
2: Um, I've been talking with, uh, Alan Boyce over at Liberty and, uh, Dan Tolkien out in Montana. And I've shot, uh, several of the Tolkien whips. And I think those are, I mean, pretty hard to beat. That's a super quiet shooting bow and he offers it in the two piece configuration, which is uh, really slick, like the bull bolt, which I guess is the same thing that uh, Dick's doing, and um, just having a hard time deciding exactly which uh, model I'm going to go with, but I'm having fun trying different bows, and uh, Alan's actually putting a, gluing up a bow for me right now that is going to be um, his new Chief, I think it's going to be a 64-inch and i sh- i've got a 62 inch chief here at my house right now and um i think just a little bit longer it'll for for my 29 and a half inch draw it'll be just perfect so i'm looking forward to shooting that
1: yeah that's it's good stuff man i haven't i usually don't even mess around and shoot a different bow and I know, I know everybody on the podcast probably knows that but it's been about 10 years it's uh it's time, and I've been eyeing those wolfers since Dick started making them a couple, three years ago. So I gave him a call, and of course, he sent me a couple, and and that was that was a mistake, probably.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: I don't know. After talking to Dan Tolke, it's gonna cost Tolkien, me a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, after talking to Dan Tolke, I uh, experienced the same thing, and um, I can tell you that I'm definitely going to be shooting. A uh, bow from Alan Boyce and one from Dan Tolke. Um, excited to try them both. I just don't know um exactly which which one I'm going to go with at this point.
1: Right on, man. Well, that's awesome. Good yeah.
2: Also, let just touch on like the t-shirts and hats thing. Yeah, we made up a couple uh different shirts and hats, and yeah, we could definitely use you know the support of the podcast. I so mean, Bob. We just love, uh, doing the show once a week to promote traditional bow hunting. And, uh, y- you could definitely, uh, help out the cause by, uh, checking out one of our shirts or hats. I think we have some stickers coming too.
1: Yeah. We're moving up in the world. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Uptown, baby. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah.
1: So yeah, that'd yeah, be cool. And, uh, we also have an absolute stud guest on here tonight.
2: Scott Colzer.
1: Yeah.
2: He from is, Montana. Uh,
1: from the, from the big sky state, Montana. Yes. And he is, uh, he's an animal. He started, he was hunting back in the day with Paul Schaefer and, and, uh, as most of you guys know, listen to this, he was, Paul's kind of my hero when I was a kid growing up. So it's cool to hear a bunch of those stories and, and, uh. Yeah, he goes up to BC every year. He's killed a few grizzly bears and moose and elk and all kinds of stuff. Been doing it forever. Said he spends about 200 days a year in the woods, which is, which is pretty good. I mean, that's a good year, right?
2: Yeah, that guy's like, he goes and gets <laughs> after it. I, I've talked to him on the phone several times and every time he's out behind his, behind his hounds on the last day of cougar season or he's uh, chasing, uh, uh shed horns across the hillside here in the spring i mean he's always out there getting after it and he's got a lot of passion so yeah scott colzer
1: yeah awesome dude talked to his kid today too we had to talk to brian to get us to send send us some pictures (laughs) because scott doesn't email so super cool talking to him we got him lined up to come on here pretty soon or whenever we can fit it in our schedule to talk some mule deer we talk a little bit about that on here so yeah, you guys will like this one? Just kind of low key, hang out, talking about hunting. So enjoy,
2: Mr. Scott Colzer.
0: This is him.
2: Well, welcome to the quest podcast. Yes, sir. Uh, we're uh, we're excited to got we got you in a good spot.
0: Yep, I got it home. Got my stuff done this morning, so I'm just sitting in the easy chair, ready to visit for a while.
2: Awesome. you guys pick up any sheds yesterday?
0: We picked up, uh, Susie found a couple old elk spikes, and then she found a nice three-point mule deer, and I found a four-point mule deer, and that was it. But we got a good two and a half hours of walking in the mountains in and listening and watching blue grouse, so it was a wonderful day to be alive.
2: That's awesome. Uh, we got my uh, co-host on here, Bob Borland, uh, Scott Colzer.
0: Hi, Bob.
1: Hey, Scott. How's it going, buddy? So, Susie, you got a dog? You got your dog trained to find the sheds in?
0: No, so Susie's my girlfriend. <laughs> oh,
1: even better. My, my
0: dogs are my dogs are mountain lion dogs, and and um, the only thing they find is kitty cats. They don't they don't do anything. If I turned them loose in the mountains right now, I'd find them the next day or two later. <laughs> so, That's so awesome. I, they're they're not shed hunters. Awesome. Well, it sounds
2: like they're uh, good cat dogs. That's, uh, uh, you know, we appreciate those, uh, guys that are doing that.
0: So I appreciate the heck kind of what the dogs do. I've, and I've been fortunate my whole life. I I started with a really good dog and I've just, uh, you know, they, I get a, a puppy, a young dog, and I just have them run with the old dog and they train themselves and, and I've, I've been fortunate over the last 25 years to have six really, really, really good dogs. And that makes mountain lion hunting fun too.
2: So, Scott, why don't you tell us uh, where you live, where you grew up and, you know, kind of how you got into uh, the traditional archery lifestyle?
0: Well, I, I live in Three Forks, Montana right now. I was born and raised in Bozeman, Montana, and uh, which is just 30 miles away from where I'm at now. And when I was six years old, I, my folks moved out of the city to three miles out in the country and which was very rural then and we had lots of animals around there. And I just started being on the creek fishing every day and I started trapping when I was seven. And I was, so I was always in the woods. And I think probably when I was eight or nine, my dad bought me a, uh, uh, fiberglass recurve bow, 25 pound bow, something like that, and started shooting it, and then worked up and got older into the, into the bear bows. They were the, the main recurve then, and, and, uh, just, have, you know, back then I shot a rifle and a bow also. And, but I, I killed my first animal when I was a, a junior in high school. I shot a little bear back behind our house with a bow and I hunted a little bit more through college some with a rifle and then once I got out of college all I've hunted with is a bow and, and when I was in when I was in high school I met a, a, a gentleman named Bob Savage who built the Savage Death Master and Bob I met Bob through trapping. He trapped and he taught me a lot about trapping and uh, and then we also got into his bows and in college I bought his bows from him and started shooting them. And then uh when I got out of college I just started solely hunting archery and I shot Bob's bows and uh, uh and then I through that I met Paul Schaefer. Paul Paul played football at the same college I went to but Paul, who ended up making a Savage Deathmaster, learned to make bows from Bob Savage. Bob was his mentor and taught him how to do it and whatnot. And then Paul altered the bows and came up with his own design and whatnot. So all I've ever really, all I've ever shot is traditional. And uh, you know, I started when I was six or seven years old, and, and and that's all I've done since then. I mean, I just. I love the part of having to get close to an animal. That's, that's why I bow hunt. And with traditional, that's the whole reason you should traditional is to see how close you can get.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Bob here, he's a huge fan of, uh, Paul Schaefer. And I'm sure, uh, he probably has a, a couple questions about your relations with him.
1: Yeah. I, I, Paul okay. Schaefer was kind of, he was my hero growing up for sure. I think, you know, I, I turned 12, which is the legal age to hunt, <clears throat> excuse me, here in Oregon in 92 and Paul passed away. Was it 93? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and I think around, you know, about, I was 10, 11, 12 and those, that range. That's when, uh, Chuck Adams was getting the super slam. And I think Paul got the, he was the first one to get the sheep slam and he did it with his recurve. And I was just. I always kind of idolized him. I grew up wrestling, you know. I, I never played football because it was kind of during hunt season, but just sounded like an extraordinary guy, and uh, kind of cool to talk somebody that actually knew him. So,
0: oh, he really, he really was a neat guy. You know, Paul was, Paul was like five foot eleven, something like that. So you know, just, you know, but stronger than strong. One of my favorite stories that I tell a lot of people. Yeah, one time we were up bear hunting. You know, Paul and I became very good friends. We hunted together a bunch and stuff like that. And Paul and I were up hunting in my Volkswagen one time, bear hunting, and I had a flat tire on the back of the Volkswagen. And I went to, you know, Volkswagen's up just a screwy little jack, and I went to get it to jack up the back to change the tire, and the jack wouldn't work. And Paul just went, no problem. And he went back there. You know, the motor of a Volkswagen is in the back. And he just grabbed hold of the bumper and picked the whole ass end up off the ground. And then with a lug wrench, I just sat there and quickly got the the nuts off and the tire off and the new tire back on. And away we went. You know, Uh how many guys do you know that pick up the back half of a car?
1: Yeah, that's awesome. That is awesome. And,
0: uh, And then, Paul, you know, we... We became friends and we hunted together. We went up and hunted Gary Moores in British Columbia together. That was my first uh, trip to Canada. My brother and I went up, and Paul went with us. And Paul shot a goat when he was in there, and he had just got done with a hunt at Don Peck's, where Paul Paul shot a uh, three forty-three fifty bull elk, and he shot a really nice grizzly. That unfortunately, his guide, when the bear. Went the one away, shot it in the foot with a 30 30 so it it could never be entered and recognized that way. But it was a 23-plus-inch grizzly. And uh, then we hunted uh, pecs that year, and Paul and I hunted together the whole time, and you know, for 10 days. And then Paul and I became closer hunting in the, the states a little bit, and then Paul actually bought an area or was buying an area in the Yukon. Paul's, Paul was a wheat farmer. His family was wheat did wheat farms and, uh, up near Great Falls, and Paul sold his, his ranch to buy a hunting area up in Canada, up in the Yukon. And when he was up there the first year when things were in progress, my wife and I were actually going to move up to there, and we were going to run the operation for Paul. And uh, he was going to own the area, and I was going to be kind of, the guy running things and whatnot. And I went up and hunted up there with Paul that year. And we hunted together. Paul had his guide license there and we hunted together for, for 10 days. Paul shot a moose. I shot a moose, a caribou and a grizzly. And, uh, it was a really phenomenal part about that back then. You know, now to go on a, a Canadian moose hunt, it's like 20 to $25,000.
1: Uh, I know, it's crazy. Back,
0: back then, I shot a moose, caribou, and a grizzly for $2,500.
2: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. So
0: uh, the, the year before, I had a moose and a caribou hunt with, at, at Gary Moore's when Paul hunted with me, and that was $1,500. And then I got to shoot the goat for an extra 1000 So, I mean, I shot three animals that year also for $2,500, you know, now it costs you almost $40,000 to shoot three animals. Yeah.
1: And Scott, you know, not to get off the, the subject of Paul Schaefer, cause I could talk about this forever, but what, I mean, you've, somebody who's been up there and done it, like what, what's the reason? Why is it so expensive now? How come it's gone up 20 times in the last, you know, 20 years?
0: A lot of it is supply and demand there's more There's more people wanting to do it now. And then a lot of it is just the airplane costs, get it flying in and out of the areas. And, I, you know, hunting used to be for fun back in those days, and now it's a big business. Yeah, yeah. And, it, it's, you know, it, like I said, the supply and demand, I mean, the, the moose – The moose populations in the Yukon and in Canada are in trouble because the grizzlies and the wolves, but mostly, to me, it's a lot of the grizzlies. The grizzlies are eating up all the calves every year, so there's no replacement crop going up. In the areas I've been hunting up there up to last year, their moose populations are just dwindling rapidly, and so there's not as many of them to hunt. And, you know, like through the McMillan brothers' stuff on tv and all that the the canadian yukon moose have like become what sheep used to be the popular animal to hunt so now everybody's wanting to hunt them and there's only so (laughs) many tags available
1: yeah if they pay it they're going to keep charging that much if they get guys to pay it Yeah. yeah that's crazy that's crazy well how sweet would that have been if that so paul passed away before he was able to kind of finish his his yukon deal
0: No, it it ended up being kind of a sad ending on that. I hunted with Paul, and Paul had bought an airplane to have up there, too. And I was the final hunt of the year. I just went up there to learn the area, to know the area, because the next year Paul was going to have it. But back in those days, an American could not own an area in Canada. So Paul was filing for dual citizenship. Paul had a handshake with this guy that he was going to buy the area, Paul sold his farm, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars fixing up cabins and fixing the area up. And when Paul and I left there, we flew back to Montana. We just got back to Montana, and like two days later, that outfitter called up Paul and said, you know what, thank you for fixing up my area. I decided not to sell it to you.
1: Oh, my goodness. Oh,
0: Yeah. And totally, really, and, you know, Paul didn't have a leg to stand on because it was a handshake he'd done with the guy and, and not a contract, but because a, an American couldn't own an area in Canada then. And Paul was in process of getting the dual citizenship, but it hadn't quite all happened. Oh, so that, that went south, and that's when Paul started going more towards making bows for a living full time and doing that. That's,
2: that's wow. terrible. That is terrible. So could you um, maybe take us back uh, to one of those hunts with Paul and maybe give us the the juicy details?
0: Well on on uh, on, on that hunt in the Yukon, you know Paul and I took off in the plane and lit at a small lake and did a spike camp. Uh, an old trapper's cabin was there. And we stayed there and we were taken off and it actually ended up they'd had a bunch of snow and then it got warm and cold, so the snow was real crunchy, so we couldn't hunt in the mornings because you just sounded like you were walking on glass everywhere. So we would glass and see what we could do and, and try to see animals. Then we'd take off, you know, really hunting by midday because it would warm up enough to make the snow soft. And on, on one of the days, I think the seventh or eighth day, the day before we'd seen this grizzly on this opposite hillside, and uh but it wasn't at a place that we could do anything with it so the next day we saw the grizzly again so paul and i went around the lake and got up to there and the grizzly was up above us and you know just when you're stalking something the noise you make so paul stayed a little bit behind me and i went on up the hill and and actually got up there and i made a little bit of noise you know not i'm five foot 20, and and uh, <laughs> make a little bit of noise walking through the woods. And I made this noise, you know, and I'm kind of like going, way to go, Kelser. And the bear heard it, and the bear came into me. The bear stalked me instead of me stalking it. And it wasn't a really big bear, just a nice bear, but it came down into me, and uh, it turned, I turned broadside at, at uh, 27 yards, and, and I shot and actually didn't make the best shot in the world. I just hit it through the fleshy part right in front of the front legs. And the bear took about two steps and stopped and turned towards me again. And I already had another arrow knocked. And I just knocked and shot, and I hit it through both lungs in, and the bear went up the hill. And Paul was, Paul was my back up on that. And Paul was 200 yards behind me with his bow. <laughs> And then we, then, then then he came up and then, uh, and, uh, we followed the, we went to follow the bear up. It was getting later in the day then. And I'd hit the bear, you know, I'd hit it good, but not super good. And so we decided to let it go. So we went back to camp that night, came back in the morning, got up on the ridge and the bear was dead 50 yards away from where we, where I'd last saw it, and the wolves had got into it that night. And they had stripped all the hair off both sides of the bear on kind of the, the chest, stomach part. They hadn't broke into the skin or anything, but they'd stripped the hair back on both sides. And, and we never saw the wolves, but we got the bear taken care of, and then a bow hunter by the name of Danny Payne who worked for I believe Jonas Brothers in Denver? He did a heck of a job fixing the heights. You couldn't even tell that uh, that the bears had ever done anything. Wow! And then, then a couple of days later, Paul and I spike camped out, uh, uh, or a couple days before that, because the, the the bear was a little bit later. A couple of days before that, Paul and I spike camp out and took a little spike camp up, and and we wake up in the morning. We got a bull moose. Right above us grunting and going along and, and we swing up into it. Paul calls it, comes into me. I shot it and it ran by our tent and actually stepped over the lines that you have to tie the tent down. <laughs> stepped over the lines and went over, kind of went over the edge of our tent and got just below our tent. But, but that made it pretty sweet. I mean, you don't very often get to have an animal expire right by your tent. The packing job was pretty easy on that one. <laughs> oh
1: man. That's perfect.
0: And then and then that that evening while we're taking care of the moose and whatnot, another moose comes down along the lake and Paul swung down into it. And um, he he got up and in on it and shot it and it was a it was a uh, I think it was a sixty two or sixty three inch wide bull. That uh you know like scored in the in the one nineties, just a really, really beautiful moose, so just right by this little lake we were camped at we were able to to put two really nice and you know, they, and this these are the the Alaska yukon since we're in the Yukon uh they were we get two moose down like that, which made packing out pretty easy and everything like that.
2: Yeah, I guess if there's any animal you you want uh, to uh, expire near your tent, it'd be the moose.
0: Well, you know, you, you, I, Doug Borland is a good friend of mine, and I was just talking with Doug. Doug did a float last year, and they found a moose of world record type quality about two and a half miles away from the river, and that wow. moose is still alive. <laughs> I mean, you just got to sit and go. I mean, you know, they're eighteen hundred 1,800 pounds. They're a big critter, and uh, you start getting that boggy, swampy, terrible country, and you have to stick that on your back and pack that out. You know, when we were 20 years old, that was kind of doable. But now that we're in our later 60s and all that, we're not that mad at the moose anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, you got to be realistic. And, and, you know,
0: exactly and you know one of the moose i killed in british columbia right after i killed it i put a tape on it just to see how big it was and from now i'm six foot eight but from the, the 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 hoof of this moose to the top of its back it was seven one wow i mean when you start to think and then you know their head sticks up above that so they're you know they're an eight and a half, nine foot tall animal when they're walking into
1: you—that's
0: oh, a—that's a big—that's a, big, a big critter. Oh, but it's also goodness. a big target, and it's easier to hit. <laughs> <is the way laughs> yeah. it. it's
1: a bow hunter's dream. It sounds like.
0: <laughs> so, they are, and you know, of all my hunting in British Columbia, I consider them more dangerous. the most dangerous animal you could hunt in essence. I consider them more. More dangerous than the bears because they're not afraid of anything. They you know, they i mean—they have an enemy in bears or wolves, but that's about their only enemy, and they're not afraid of anything. And you get down in there, especially in the rut, when they're when they're going, and um, they're very formidable, and they don't just always turn around and run. So I have—I have, in an essence, more respect for them than I do for bears.
1: Yeah, it sounds awesome. We had Brian Burkhardt on a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about getting charged by a couple of them and stuff. Yeah, they sound like no joke for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, they're just, I mean, years ago when I was in high school, I had a moose tag in in just outside of Bozeman, Montana, and I was looking for a really big moose. And I got into this young bull, and I just thought, oh, this would be a fun animal to blunt. So I got in on him, and I blunted him, and here he came. And I dropped my bow, and I scurry up this tree. And he comes around to the base of the tree and is raking and stomping on stuff. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, God, that was kind of a terrible place to leave my bow. He's down there wanting to do a tap dance on it. So I'm up this tree breaking off limbs, and I start throwing them at him and I start throwing them a little bit farther away, and he'd sit there and thrash them and and beat up the ground, but I was getting him a ways away. And uh, finally, you know, I quit throwing stuff down there, and he got bored, and he wandered off. And in my infinite wisdom, I get out of the tree, and instead of just heading somewhere else, I go, I think I'll sneak in on him again and do that again. Well, I just started going where he went, and here he came, right. So he'd been kind of, he had set me up. So back I go up the tree, leave my ball on the ground and do the same stick thing. And I finally get him to leave. And when I got out of the tree the second time, I went the opposite direction of where where he was.
1: <laughs> that's awesome. That is so awesome. Uh,
2: that's great. So uh, you've got a uh, son, it sounds like, that's a hunting partner?
0: Yes. Yes. My my uh, son is, my son started out, you know, he got into, you know, I didn't push it on him. I've just never done that. You know, I just, I hunted with a bow. He started shooting a bow and, and uh, Brian got into shooting it. And Brian has been right-handed his whole life and done everything right-handed. And he's shooting the ball and shooting it right-handed. And, you know, if he was 10 feet away, he'd be pretty lucky to hit the house. <laughs> and he just wanted, but you know, I've dealt with other people and kids that you know it doesn't come natural and easy to everybody. But Brian just his his accuracy was was wasn't the best, but he you know it was okay, wasn't the best, but he his when he was sixteen year old years old had him hunting and and he, he killed a, a white tail doe, and then the next night he shot a really nice five point white tail buck. And he did the old Texas heart shot on it, and it, of course, went about 30 yards and tipped over with the femoral artery being cut. And then that summer, we're shooting golfers. and we're shooting golfers, this friend and I see him sticking his head over the gun and using his left eye. And that's when we found out he was left eye dominant. And so Brian does everything right-handed kind of like a Phil Mickelson or Mickelson does that, but golf's left. Brian totally taught himself to shoot a ball left-handed and now he's deadlier and deadly and is one heck of a bull hunter. I mean, he's got a collection of animals in his basement and a really, really immense collection of a uh, nice collection of mule deer bucks from Wyoming, uh, from, you know, in the, 180s to 200, uh, really, really nice deer. But the fun part about him, Brian and his hunting, to where it's just not as, as, as uh, you know, it, it, pretty amazing to teach yourself. I mean, if you're right-handed, could you do much left-handed? The answer is no, if we had to just pick up a ball and do anything. But Brian has turned into an unreal hunter. And one of the years we're down hunting in Wyoming, Brian sees this uh, mule deer buck. It's in its one seventies and he's he's not he's not with me that day. He decided he was hunting a buck that they had nicknamed Pulley. And the reason they nicknamed that buck Pulley, our guide was a bull hunting guide, or the guy that oversaw the area was a bull hunter, but a compound hunter. And he'd seen this buck for several years and he'd nicknamed it pulley. He says because that buck is so smart, the only person that's ever going to kill it is somebody shooting a compound at, like, 60 or 80 or 100 yards. So he nicknamed it Pulley. Well, Brian was hunting Pulley, and Brian sees this 175 buck one day. and he says, That isn't what I want to shoot, but I want to see how close I can get. Brian's hand was 18 inches away from the antler of that deer when the deer finally realized he was there. Wow. I mean, he got within a foot and a half of grabbing hold of one of his handlers. And then the next day, I'm actually down at a friend's house, Mike Barrett's in in Dayton, Wyoming, talking with him. I'm on my way home. I shot a 170 buck. And Brian calls me up on the cell phone. My cell phone rings, and he goes, I just pickled toy. And he crawled within 15 yards of a of, uh, pulley, and pulley was laying with a sagebrush in front of him. And Brian shot to shoot through the sagebrush, but ended up killing the sagebrush, just stuck his arrow right in his thick sagebrush bush. <laughs> and pulley ran off and got bedded again, and Brian crawled to within 14, 15 yards of him again and was able to totally see his vitals with no interference in. And he shot pulley, and I think pulley was 187 wow. with all kind of cheater stuff and all that, just a beautiful, beautiful deer. So once again, the fun part of my son is his ability as a hunter as a woodsman, you know, not to see how far away he can shoot the animal, but to see how close he can get to it to get it done
2: that's so cool. And how how old's Brian now?
0: Brian is thirty nine years old now.
2: Okay, so he's my age. That's great. Um, and has he and been at, p- pretty much doing? I mean, when did he really get serious with you and start hunting? Was that sixteen?
0: Well, he was. We on hunted. He he shot two animals, three animals with a rifle when he was fourteen. You know, I had him hunting. From when he was, you know, I was shooting golf. Real, as a kid, from when he was seven, eight years on. he had a bow and shooting a bow. And and uh, his first year of hunting, when he was 14, he shot a a deer an elk and a bear with a rifle. And when he shot the elk, he looked at me and he says, "Dad, I never want to shoot another animal with a rifle again." Now he had never shot anything with a bow up to then.
2: Yeah, and
0: but he I've, made that statement, and he he hasn't shot anything with a rifle since then. It's all, it's all been archery, and he I, shoots, uh, he shoots a, a, a Schaefer Silver Tip, also. Kate very Ballard.
2: cool. I was just going to say, I have uh, three daughters that I'm raising up, and they all shoot bows, and I'm trying to get them into some gun hunting because they they can't draw enough weight on their longbows and recurves yet. And they just, they want to hunt with their bows. Uh, and so it's been a, a little bit of going back and forth, trying to talk them into getting that experience first with, with the gun and work them way, their way into the bow hunting. And, um, so yeah, I can relate to that. Um, also my middle child is left handed and does everything left handed. And I set her up shooting at, at as a really young toddler left handed. And same thing when I put her on a, a rifle in her, she went to closing her left eye and looking with her right eye and wanting to move the gun stock over to her right shoulder. And so yeah, I, same thing. She's uh, left-handed, shoots right-handed.
0: Uh, I have, I haven't heard of, heard of that, but but been, you know they've got to shoot their dominant eye. Yeah. And it, you know with her being young. Bill Bryan was young. You know, when Bryan switched over from right handed to left handed, I came home. I was working a lot and I was working out of town that summer. I came home and Bryan was totally shooting a bow left handed. So it wasn't ever me bugging him, you need to do this. He wanted to be able to shoot a bow.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. And shoot
0: it accurately. So. And, you know, he still doesn't do anything left-handed, but he shoots, he can shoot a ball right-handed and left-handed, but left-handed better, but to start your daughter off now at an early age would, you know, they just can acclimate it to it so much easier, would be the time to do it.
2: Yeah, I start all three of mine young, but with Aubrey, she, I I, I made the assumption as a left-handed person that she'd be a left-handed shooter, and... She was always picking up the bow with the right hand and doing like, I'm like, what are you doing? You got this wrong. And I, I tried to force her to be a left-handed shooter for a solid year till I realized and it made all the difference in the world, um, having her make the switch. So I think people definitely have to, you have to kind of test their eye dominance more than what hand they use.
0: Exactly. And that, you know, not so easy with just the finger trick, but we take it, what we take it for granted, you know, but with me, I took it for granted. My son was right-handed; that he was shooting a right-handed, kind of like you did with your daughter.
2: Yeah, I had. Then I have another left-handed daughter that does shoot left-handed. Okay. And then one that's yeah. right, right, right-handed. So yeah, I got a little bit of everything.
0: Well, you'll have a nice collection of bows. Not too many hand-me-downs. Everybody, everybody's got to have their own bow.
2: Yeah, that's kind of how how it is. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So so. so speaking
1: of bows, let's uh what what do you guys uh what do you shoot, Scott? I mean it sounds like you're shooting a silver tip. Maybe we can go over while we're on that your setup and what you shot over the years and if that's changed all the way, you know, bows, arrows, broadheads.
0: Well, broad broad broadheads never changed. I started shooting Zwicky Eskimo Black Diamonds, you know, forty five years ago, and I've never had a problem with one. And oh, what do they call them? The ones that hit on impact. Now the new, the new broadheads. I, I, I don't like them at all. And I detest them. In fact, and I've had two different people mountain lion hunt with me.
2: Are you talking about mechanical broadheads?
0: Them. Yeah, mechanical broadheads. I've had two different people hunt with me that had them, and they didn't open up on impact with lions. And when I take people out with me lion hunting now. I will not even let them shoot the mechanical broadheads. And I'm a believer in the solid-bladed ones, the ones that I have to sharpen myself that aren't sharpened at a factory. This is where I can sharpen. I can practice with the same broadhead and shoot the same broadhead in the field. Yeah. And I've never had a black diamond come apart on me, do anything. They're easy to sharpen. You know, most shots are pass-throughs. So all I've ever shot is them. I've never shot the the Delta, I've just shot the Eskimo. And then in bows, uh, I shot this Savage Deathmaster right out of high school or into college, and the first couple years out of college, and then, you know, Paul started making his bow, and it's a more comfortable handle, and new Paul, and and the bow I have today, still today, was made by Paul. It's the bow I shoot. Well, it's half the bow I shoot. Uh, Paul, you know, I did masonry work forever, so I was in pretty good physical condition and for 30 some years I shot a, I, I, I shot the 72 pound Deathmaster and a uh, false takedown. And I could always draw it and just, just absolutely love the bow. It just, you know, I knew where the arrow was going. I had, I had confidence in the bow. And it shot really, you know, it shot over 200 feet a second, shot flat, enjoyed it, very smooth, the bow didn't stack. And then as I got old, and I had a pretty major accident 20 years ago, and I can't work all that much anymore, and with not working, the muscles have gone soft, and and a couple, three years ago, I'm up in Kansas, and I have a coyote come by me, I've got to draw the bow after Sitting in a tree for four hours on the coyote and I can't draw my bow back. <laughs> and I'm now shooting a 57 pound, uh, set of limbs. Of course, Paul is gone, so Dave Windauer made the limbs for me. And so my bow now, the handle was made by Paul, but the limbs I'm shooting were made by Dave. And, uh, and that's pretty much, you know, I had that 72 pound bow forever. You know, when I hunted with Paul, he shot an 84 and a 90-pound bow. Jeez.
1: Crazy. And
0: one, day, one day after I shot a really nice whitetail buck, Paul and I were hunting together. I shot a really nice whitetail buck, and the adrenaline was going. And I was actually able to pull his 90-pound bow back that day. Other than that, every day I tried to pull it back. I never got it back to full draw. But uh,
1: Wow, that's crazy. So,
0: so, so that's that's the and then the arrows you know I've, we shot aluminum for forever back in the days when I was first shooting them uh, these aluminum's twenty one seventeens twenty two sixteens with with feathers and then some with some of the moisture we we're, were hunting we shot plastic and then over towards the end when I was hunting with Paul's heavier bow I pretty much went totally to wood arrows with uh, you know with uh, with feathers i enjoyed shooting them and whatnot and then when i had to go to the lighter bow the 50 57 pound bow now i'm shooting uh, the full metal jacket arrows mm-hmm. still shooting the black diamonds and still shooting feathers and all that but you know a little bit lighter arrow a uh, little bit little you know to me it's the flatter trajectory I mean, kind of what you learn to shoot with a flatter trajectory. It's easier to know just where you're hitting, to me. So, I I I went to the full metal jacket arrows instead of the wood arrows.
1: And are you? Did you shoot off the shelf or do you use the elevated rest?
0: I use the elevated rest. I've still got some of the old bare rests. Back when they quit making those, I bought a whole bunch of them. And because I shot plastic for a while, mm-hmm. you know, plastic doesn't doesn't shoot off the shelf worth a dang. And so I uh, started shooting off the off uh, you know elevated. And plus that, thirty some years ago, I went to the Apache draw way of shooting. I shoot three fingers under instead of one over. So having the the elevated raft, if you buy it off a bow, you'll, both are kind of tuned to have to shoot one finger over. And if I, I, uh, by going to the elevated raft, it's like I was shooting one finger over compared to shooting off the shelf with the elevated raft.
2: Oh, I see, for the tiller, yeah.
0: Yeah. And then I've always, I mean, I don't have the best form in shooting. I snap shoot. You know, Schaefer and all my other good friends all draw, hold for the seconds, you know, really hit a solid anchor point, hold, and shoot.
2: Oh, so Paul Schaefer was a proponent of uh, drawing and holding?
0: Oh, yeah. He'd sit there and hold that 90-pound bow for forever. But, you know, he wouldn't hold it. I mean, he could hold it forever. He wouldn't hold it forever. I mean, he'd draw, hold, and then release. So he was a proponent of that, where I have always just basically been a snapshooter. I mean, the minute my thumb touches my mouth, the arrow's gone. There's there's no holder at all. You know, I, I tried to hold, and it's like if I sit and I pull back and I hold, my concentration, instead of picking that little spot like the dot of a flea on the animal, all of a sudden I see the whole animal the woods and everything. and I don't know where the hell the arrow's going <laughs> so 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 by snap shooting like that, you know it's more of a herky jerky relief to say the least so for for stability of the arrow, I went to four fletch and i uh, all my arrows are have been uh when i used to shoot veins with weather in the seventy two pound bow i shot i shot fletch and I shot five-inch. Now I shoot four-inch feathers. But like I said, I still do the the, the 4 flesh because the other part to me, I mean, I've been in situations where you shoot an arrow and you have to have another arrow out immediately, almost like the Howard Hill thing where you'd have two or three arrows and flight at a time. Um, I, I just can grab another arrow and knock it, and it's knocked. It's ready to go. You know, I don't have to have... The the head feather up, you know, on like on three fletch, have it knocked just right. No matter how you knock it, you're ready to go.
2: Yeah, I agree 100%. I run four inch, four, uh, fletch on my, uh, Doug Fur shafts, and I love it. I love it.
0: Yeah. To me, it's the way to go. I really like it, and I, you know, you, you lose a touch speed with that, but I don't think that much, so I, I, re- you know, any, anybody I get started or going, I try to get them a bit to four-fletch and the four-inch also.
2: It it creates a, a big um, picture. You can, it makes that uh, fletch look like a golf ball flying through the air.
0: Yeah. And I generally, this last year I used some lime green, but I always used it before just to have white fletching because you could really see that on the animal. You know, I don't use dark fletching to where – If you hit and you bury it to the feathers or something, you're you're not sure where you hit. I try to use feathers that I can see that if something's there, I know where I hit the animal.
2: Why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on in Montana nowadays and what you're up to?
0: So, What's going on in Montana, like our archery season's and that?
2: Yeah. Well,
0: you know, we probably... To me, we have the greatest state in the union for archery seasons. You can legally hunt with a bow in Montana ten months of the year, and you know, and a lot of a lot of different species. Our our antelope season opens August fifteenth, and for most of the state, we have a nine hundred tag that archers can apply. Bow, you can hunt with a bow during that season, and the whole state. It, you can just hunt with a bow. Now, when it comes to gun season, it, it's invalid, because then they have separate tags for rifle season and whatnot later. But our our, our gun tags in our state, you have to hunt a certain district. With an, with an archery antelope, you can hunt. And a 900 tag, you can hunt the whole state. You can hunt any district in the state. So that opens August 15th, which runs into September. And then... For for a general date, our archery season in Montana opens. For deer and elk, opens September 5th, and that runs all the way to, to rifle season, October 22nd. And you can hunt with a bow during rifle season the whole time. And that generally runs till well uh, the weekend after Turkey Day, which is generally the 27th, 28th, 29th of of November. And then the big game season closes. And then December 1st, mountain lion season opens and runs till April 15th or April 14th. And then April 15th, black bear season opens and runs to June 15th. How do you get any work done?
2: <laughs> See, Bob, uh, <laughs> mountain lion hunting would connect the dots for us, buddy.
0: Exactly.
2: That's can that's the guys, missing link.
0: Can you guys even hunt cats in Oregon?
1: Uh, but well, not with dogs. They outlawed it with uh, we, bears we've and got lions a, with hounds in '96, I think.
2: Yeah, so we got a year-round season on them, but you can't run dogs.
0: You know, you know, a lot of, I, I run dogs, and I have a ton of fun doing it, and it's my favorite time of the year to be out in the mountains because the orange army is gone. I have the mountains to myself, but this friend of mine that I referred you to the other day, Mike Barrett from Dayton, Wyoming, he walked two mountain lions down oh, and awesome. shot shot them shot with his recurve. Nice. Yeah. He, he, he has pictures of probably 20 or 30 different caps that he's got into, he's seen, he's called them into him, Well, he did two seminars for the Montana Bowlers Association and talking about it. And we have this family, the Camps family in Montana, that is just an unreal batch of hunters. The dad has shot tremendous elk. The kids are shooting tremendous elk now and everything else. And now the grandson is, is doing it and the daughters. In fact, two years ago, the daughter that's like, 12- 12- or 14-year-old daughter was the bowl hunter of the year for Montana Bowhunters because her first year of hunting, she went out and shot a six-point bull, a nice white tail buck, a couple of deer. She had to do all kinds of uh, exercises to get to be strong enough to shoot a bow that year, but she still did it. But the dad, uh, Steve Camps, he listened to Barrett's seminar, and went, you know I'm going to give Mount Lion hunting a try, trying to walk him down. And the next three years, he took a cat each year with walking it down and shooting it with his bow without dogs.
1: Oh man, that's awesome! Yeah, we had we had Gary Renfro on a while back, and he's he got one doing that. And yeah, our our lion population here is out of control. So that's that's my goal next winter is I'm going to.
2: Walking a, them down. I'm gonna walk, walk them, them down, down,
1: buddy. I got a, I got a solid plan. Actually, I was talking to my brother about it yesterday. We got some areas picked out, and, uh, oh man, that's awesome! I can't wait to talk to those guys about it. That's cool.
0: Well, the, the best way to do it, how, I, how I'm line I, I go to the same drainages every day, and check for tracks. You don't go here one day and there one day. You go to the same drainage. And also, if you have a track, you know it's less than 24 hours old. And then you learn to know if it's smoking fresh or if it's medium fresh or if it, if you think it's, you know, 12 to 20 hours old or something like that. And just go to the same places. And then when you get a fresh track, just get on it and start following it. And, uh, you know, you can get up there. If you get to a canyon edge and all of a sudden you got a canyon below you, or, or an area below you, you might try predator calling them because they do predator call in. You know they don't come in. You know coyotes and wolves come in at a dead ass run. Cats come in more cautiously. So you get, just gotta just got to be watching and aware, and, and definitely not moving a lot. But uh, but you can just I mean, cats really aren't afraid of us. So I've had, I've had several instances of cats that when the human got close, they climbed up the tree. And uh, so you, you walk up on them and they spook, you know, that's their protection is to go up a tree. And so they just climb a tree and, you know, you've yeah. done what you need to do. Yeah. In fact, Mike Barrett, Mike, Mike Barrett on his first cat, he was following a set of cat tracks and it went under this big pine tree. So he scrunches down to walk under the branches, and all of a sudden there's his tail hanging in front of him. Oh. The cat, the cat had just climbed up one of the limbs right then, and he had to back up to be able to shoot it.
1: <laughs> oh, Shoot! Oh man, that's awesome. I'm all fired up now. Actually, we have some fresh snow. That's what I should be doing right now. I might just take off and do it.
2: <laughs> connect, connect, connecting the dots. Oh uh, man. Bob.
1: Yeah, this is, this is good stuff for sure. Well, we're, we're definitely going yeah, to have to hunting. get, we're going to try to get Mike on here. I know we've been trying to call him. So, oh, that'd be sweet. Yeah, so nice. He's,
0: he's, uh, he's, a, he's like, like I mentioned the other day, he, to me, he's the, the best traditional, not traditional any. He's the best ball hunter I know. So, I mean, he has, he has four mule there over 400 inches and over the first four. You
2: he, mean 200 uh, inches?
0: Two hundred inches plus. He, yeah. he had seen he had seen five two hundred inch mule deer in his life, and he had shot four of them <laughs> with a recurve. And he, he just does it. He, I mean, it's all spot and stock, sneaking in, just. You know, things aren't right, you back out, then you move in or do whatever. But Mike has 30 ant white or I mean mule deer in the in the book. He's never shot a land carp, which he refers to as white tails. But he's got he's got he's got a twenty twenty five elk from three seventy five down in the book. Fifteen antelope. You know he's killed all sheep. He's killed the mountain lions, other things like that. But he's just and he 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 takes a ton of pictures. Really good photographer. A lot of times he just gets in the animals and takes pictures and. And doesn't shoot him. Two years ago, he's up in the mountains in in the spring out of Wyoming, screwing around looking for arrowheads, carrying his bow with him. And he had a bonafide twenty-plus inch bear in front of him. He put his bow down to get the last few yards closer so he could take a really neat picture of it. Wow. So he just he's just a guy. He spends more time in the woods than I spend, and I spend about two hundred days a year.
2: Wow. Yeah, but that's no kidding. I've I've talked to you on the phone I think three times. And every time you were in the woods when I got you,
0: I, I try to be there. <laughs> you know, it's why it's why I live here. And you're and you're dead a long time, so I'm gonna have as much fun getting there as I can till then.
2: <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, we're gonna have to also get your uh, son on. He sounds like a uh, great inspiration to uh, everyone out there uh, pursuing game with the stick and string.
0: Yeah. well, you know especially for the younger sector. you know he's one of the younger hunters that uh, that just really enjoys what he does loves being in the woods and and like I said the part of you know figuring the animal out so that you can get close to it and get the right shot and all this and that and and Brian, you know Brian has just done that and he's been been very successful at it and 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 he's also, Gotten very strong in our Montana Bowhunters Association, you know, working, putting on the bank banquets, doing this, being an officer, and that. So he's, and he's, he's a, been an instructor for 15 years for hunter education, and doing all that. So he's just he's just a young man that's really promoting the sport in our state.
2: That's awesome. Well, congratulations on raising such a young man. Well oh, thank you. Awesome. Well do you got anything in uh closing, Bob or
1: Yeah, I want to uh I know you do a lot of elk hunting too. Let's uh how's the elk hunting going in Montana? Is that where you do most of your elk hunting or um do you go out of state and apply all over or what?
0: No, I don't I I have never applied anywhere else for elk hunting. And part of the reason that to be is, is you know, I love hunting British Columbia. And I and I like hunting bears. Bears are my thing. I mean, I was fortunate in 2005. I got a polar bear, a grizzly, and a black bear all the same year. <laughs> and uh, uh, I've killed. I've taken three grizzlies with my bow. And you know, I, I like hunting them. I mean, I I hunted them last year in British Columbia. So British Columbia, the season just got closed totally for the whole province. Yeah, the, the do-gooders went out again and then closed it down. So, but I go to Canada in the fall, and when Canada's good is when elk hunting's good in Montana. So, unfortunately, over the years, I've sacrificed a lot of elk hunting in Montana to be up in British Columbia hunting moose and hunting grizzlies and whatnot, but. Uh, couple of years ago, I had my favorite elk hunting story. I mean, to me, just the funnest, most exciting, and 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 I've had a lot of fun stories hunting the wily wapiti. But but on this one, I'd been to Canada hunting, hunting bears, hadn't been successful. But I got back, and it was the uh, twenty eighth or 29th of September, and the the rut is basically really winding up. It's over, and things are really slowing down. And I got with this friend and. And uh, he hadn't shot an elk yet, and and we got permission to go on this ranch uh, up out of Ennis to go elk hunting. And we got up there that night, and that morning, we were there that morning, and we put some elk to bed. They fed off this one ranch up into the Forest Service across this gully. And so Michael goes, I know there's a couple, two, three crossings down here. Tonight, let's get set up for them coming back back onto the ranch over here. So we walked down the gully, and I uh, got to the first crossing, pretty major crossing. Michael says, you stay here. I'm going to go down the next crossing and be down there. Well, I get set up there, and the wind's being real swirly up and down the gully. I get set up, marginal wind, and I have this small six point come off the ridge, but Michael and I that morning, excuse me, were on top of the ridge that morning. We're both going, it's about the 1st of October. Things are over. I want to eat some elk meat for the year. I'll I'll shoot a, a calf if it's got milk on its lips coming in. I want to eat elk this winter and whatnot. We'll shoot anything we can. Both of us are going, we'll shoot anything we can. We get down, I get down there. We get broke up. I have this little six-point coming in. I want to try to shoot him. He comes in, he gets about 20 yards, but he's just coming in straight and spooky and my wind's swirling, and he's drinking out of the creek, and all of a sudden his nose just goes up, and he doesn't like it. Now, he just turns and goes straight away, goes up the ridge, never offers a shot, anything like that, off he goes. And in about a half hour, the wind changes and starts pulling down the gully. So I moved to the other side of the, the trail coming down, crossing and there's no place for me to really hide or anything, so right against this creek, this creek is like a creek 10, 12 feet wide, pretty fast rushing water coming down, a lot of noise. I just lean up against this tree. Now, I, in the woods, I'm a, I don't wear all camel. I have a camel top. I have just green wool bottoms. And then if I get in the animals, I have a head net I put on. But, I just get leaned up against this big old fir tree, lean up against it right by the creek and and, uh, and just prop there and waiting. And God, about 15, 20 minutes before getting pretty dark, here comes a cow, a couple more cows and a calf coming down to this crossing. Then this one cow comes in and gets in the creek two yards from me. He's watering in this creek right there, and I've got this bugling up above me going on, so I'm sitting there watching. Earlier we're going, we'll shoot a calf with milk on his lips. You know, I got this cow right there. I want to shoot her, but I want to see what's coming. <laughs> and then a bull comes in and gets down the creek on the other side of the tree, gets below me three yards away. So he's actually downwind. This is a little rat bull, a five-point. He gets right there three yards from me. And now I have some elk coming down into the creek, some cows and that. And then the small six-point that I wanted to try to shoot earlier comes down, and I let him walk right by it 20 yards and walk out because I hear a pretty good bull. And then two five-points come down and walk right by me and walk out. Now i got about ten elk standing in the creek 20 yards away where I planned to try to shoot one. And and when all this starts, I, my, my best friend, Lee Poole, who used to be the president of the Montana Bowlers Association, had died a year and a half earlier. And I had got all his archery stuff from his, his widow. I had bought all of Lee's stuff. And Lee had some wood arrows. And I took one of them with Lee's broadheads, a Zwicky black diamond on it, and I sharpened that up. And I wanted to shoot a grizzly. I had put that arrow in my quiver, and for two years going up to B.C., had carried it hoping to shoot a grizzly and just hadn't had the opportunity. When all these elk started coming in, I took the other arrow off my quiver, and I stuck Leroy's arrow on, my, on the string. And when I had the 20 elk in the creek in front of me, all of a sudden the bull comes in. Now, I told you I had a cow two yards away from me. This bull comes down to the creek and walks between me and that cow. I'm sitting there with an arrow on the string, and I had to pull my bow back to keep the elk from hitting the arrow, the, the end of the arrow. I could have reached out and touched that bull. And it's just a four-point, and it walks right by me. and walks up the hill, and I let it walk. And then the better bull that I was seeing running around, I can see him now, and he's not a monster, just a nice bull, but he's terrorizing things. Then I have another little six-point come in and walk right by me where all the cows are in the creek, and then all of a sudden, this better bull gets down in the creek, and all of a sudden, he's there with 20 cows, and I don't have a shot at him because it's just a mass elk, and then all of a sudden, two cows step aside just like you swung open a set of doors They step aside, and I can see the bull's chest and everything. And I just, I don't even remember shooting. I just instinctively shoot, boom, and I just pinned him. And he runs up the hill to go away, and I'd take him right through the top of the heart and the lungs. And then he came tumbling down the hill and and died within 15 yards of me. But he was uh, the the first true 7 by 7 I've ever shot. And like I said, not a monster bull, a three hundred five bull. But um, I gave the antlers to to Leroy's son, and I told him it was Leroy's last bull. Oh, that's awesome! But it's the it's the only time in my life I've ever just been in a place and had thirty elk from two to twenty yards away, and not know I was there.
2: Oh, that's what it's all about.
0: Oh, that was the most exciting elk hunt I've ever had in my life. And my buddy that was supposed to be down at the creek crossing down below, he heard all the elk, and he went up the hill, and there were still another 75 elk coming down towards me, and he was within 5 yards to 15 yards of six different bulls that he didn't shoot because he had a bull up there that he figured was in the three eighties to three ninety. And he had it at twenty to forty-five yards for an hour, and never got a shot at it, and never got it. But he just kept patiently waiting for a shot, but it just never happened. So, wow.
2: so you guys, went, a, uh, you guys got a you guys got a six-week archery season.
0: Yes. it's pretty liberal. So in an essence, in effort, in an essence, we've got an eleven-week because we right. can ball hunt all the rifle seasons.
2: Right. Um, so, is, so is elk or mule deer, which is your preferred
0: game? Uh, if if we had much for mule deer left in the state, it would be mule deer. But our mule deer population is in so much trouble. We 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 don't have a tenth of the mule deer we used to have, or we don't have a, a 20th or 50th of the mule deer bucks we used to have. Our fishing game... 20 years ago decided to raise predators instead of ungulates and our mule deer are just getting ate out of house and home by the, by the lions and all that. And we don't have to, we have a very, we have very few mule deer in our state. So because of that uh, elk, I guess you'd have to say elk or kind of if, although the, most of the area I hunt is up by West Yellowstone. Next to Yellowstone National Park, that's where I've always hunted elk for, for forever. And when the park decided to introduce wolves into the park, the park used to have 28, uh, 30,000 elk in it, and last spring's count was
1: 3,300.
0: So the elk hunting, the elk hunting I used to have up near West Yellowstone, that was phenomenal years ago. Now is uh, pretty shaky because you know the elk migrate out of Yellowstone in the winter, a lot of them, because they don't have the winter grounds and whatnot. But now there's just not much to migrate out. Yeah. And then elk hunting in my part of the world has changed so much because of the the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem, and them wanting to be, bring grizzlies back too. I mean, we've always had grizzlies up there, but we didn't have that many and there was something you always had to be very conscious of but now anymore there are so many grizzlies around Yellowstone not just around Yellowstone all the way to, from Yellowstone to Bozeman to the, to the gravelly Mountains to everything that you know you used to bugle you, you know we used to get kind of in thick cover and bugle or cow call but I've covered uh, for something to come in You don't bugle or cow call in that part of the world anymore unless you can see a 100 yards in all directions because I've got a lot of different friends and just have the different stories of people bringing grizzlies in instead of elk. So you have to be very careful in our part of the world during elk season anymore because we've got so many bears.
2: Wow, yeah. Well, and what about the the whitetail deer it sounds like they're they're making a, uh, a pretty good foothold in montana
0: oh well, the whitetails are are fantastic in montana i mean they've replaced the mule deer in a lot of ways and you know totally you know overrun the river bottoms and we've got great river bottom coverage for all that my you know, my my son killed a, uh a deer in uh, the gross in the 160s last year his wife killed a White tail that I think grows one sixty seven. We're just got we've got some very, very good good white tails throughout the whole state. We've got the Yellowstone River bottom, and all this and that, and our our white tail population is doing fantastic. Is and there a, is there
2: an over the counter option for late season white tails for bow hunters?
0: Now, for 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 resident, you you. For a resident of Montana, you get one uh, deer A-tag a year, and that A-tag is good for most of the state for mule deer, bucks or does or anything, but for the whole state, it's good for whitetail bucks. Now we have a bunch of B-tags you could buy, but they're all for antlerless deer. So the A-tag, anybody can buy. And on anywhere for a non-resident, I don't know the answer to that question.
1: Well, I know a non-resident, you have to apply for the, the, it's kind of like Wyoming, James. It's a general tag, but you still have to apply for it. You have to apply by March 15th. And I know, um, when they raised the tag prices years ago, just for the elk, we used to have to, we'd only draw it every couple of years back in, you know, early two thousands, but they raised the tag prices, the wolves, all those issues, it, it got to where they wouldn't even sell out of the general tags. But now I think it's, uh I know last year they sold out of them pretty quick, you know, like because they'll, they'll have, you can draw, you go through the draw, then they'll have the leftover tags. So to answer your question, I think you got to, I think you got to apply now. I think it's getting a little tougher to draw. And so I think you apply by March 15th, but it's, you can draw it kind of, I think mo- most of the time, so.
0: Well, that, that's deer or elk. That's... I don't know if they're just, just deer tags you can get. The, the, what you said is exactly right on the deer and elk license. But I, there are some deer licenses, I think, but I don't know what the, whether you can buy them or not. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't either. So I, 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 I thought there was a – I think there's a elk combination, a deer and elk combination, or you can just go deer. I think it's how it works for a non-resident when you apply, but don't quote me. You'll have to look it up, but I think you can get, you know, if you wanted to go white tail hunting, I think you, as a non-resident, you could do it just about every year.
0: I see. Right. So I, I, I think that is right. Once again, I don't know for sure because most everybody I, most everybody I deal with goes for the, the deer and elk combination. Right.
2: Awesome. Well, do you have, uh, anything you'd like to, uh, leave us in closing you know maybe to uh the young guys listening
0: to the young guys listening i guess my main point would be what 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 i talked about my son i mean the main reason we hunt with a bow and this is a, a recurve compound whatever is to be close and not to be easy and whatnot i'm a believer in you know i fletch my own arrows i do all that i sharpen my broadheads. Because I want as much to do with it as I can. But then the whole thing at the end is to get as close to the animal as I possibly can. I mean, my last two grizzlies, I shot at 10 and 11 yards. And that's where I want to be. I don't want to be shooting things at, at 30, 40 yards and this and that. I want to get as it, – it's why I want to get as close and to see. I want to be a good hunter, not a good bow shot. So I just promote the the youth of the day to to see how close you can get to the animal before you harvest it.
2: I love it. It's awesome. Close range bow hunting. We're bringing it back.
0: (laughs) Yep, exactly.
1: Yeah, that's what it's all about.
0: It's what what makes the heartbeat. Exactly.
1: That's awesome, Scott. We really appreciate your time, man. We'll we'll have to get you back on. Um, I know that the young guys out there, I mean, they can learn so much from listening to guys like you that have, have pretty much done it all and have been doing it for longer than we're alive. So we appreciate your time. We really do.
2: Once again, we always like to thank the listeners. We appreciate it. Episode 49 is behind us. We got a special guest coming up on episode 50. I can't wait to, uh, Unleash the beast <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah it's going to be a good one for sure So uh, yeah Thanks for the support guys
2: Yeah don't forget to uh, leave us a review On iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean Google Play Tell your friends about us Keep the wind in your face Pick a spot And a sharp arrow And shoot straight nice.